Ding, ding, ding. We have our first finisher of Tour Divide 2023. Uh, Through editing, and depending on the launch of this episode, the timing of which, surely plenty of others will make it to Antelope Wells, New Mexico, at the southern terminus, the end of the southbound Tour Divide. Massive congratulations to all riders, all finishers, and to Ulrich Bartholmius of Germany for taking the win. Okay, what else? Let's see. Uh, This intro isn't a normal intro. I haven't said, hello, welcome back to King of the Ride podcast. I am Ted King. I'm your host. Because our host today is Rebecca Rush, the living legend, the Hall of Famer, the world champion, the Emmy Award winner, the author, the entrepreneur, that Rebecca Rush. My friend, Rebecca Rush, she thoughtfully reached out to me and asked if she could help in, in the telling of my Tour Divide story. My Tour Divide did not go the way I wanted. Not all events do. I would, of course, be lying if I didn't say that it was a personal letdown to not make it to that finish line in Antelope Wells. But there's still a lot to unpack. Uh, I have a hunch my Tour Divide career, if you will, is not over. I'm excited to help share a thing or two about my journey. And that's the point of this pod. Speaking of which, on the same topic, I have my entire packing list created in in an online form. The hardware, the soft goods, everything in between. This is a two-part entry on my website. Check out that link in the show notes. And I will uh, share every single thing I brought along in my ride. It was really helpful for me to see what others brought in previous editions of Tour Divide. The sharing of knowledge has been instrumental in even getting me to the start line. So that's something that I wanted to share with anyone interested out there. So enough of me talking right now. Let's get to Rebecca Rush's intro and this episode of King of the Ride podcast. here i am with the one and only ted king one of my really good friends um amazing human amazing bike rider and today i get the opportunity actually to flip the tables to interview ted on his own podcast uh, (laughs) about a really cool really big experience that he had on the tour divide which is a really long bike race self-supported on the great divide mountain bike route um huge, huge ride that is 2,700 miles, um, self-supported. A bunch of people do it. A bunch of crazy people do it. And this was the first year that that Ted really made a commitment to, I think, what might be the longest ride of his life. Um, and I suggested we flip the tables because it's such a big experience. And Ted's an amazing podcaster, interviewed a ton of really cool people. But I thought it might be interesting as an ultra-endurance rider myself If I got to ask Ted the questions to help try to articulate all that went down from the inception of why he wanted to do this route, how it went, how he prepared, what happened, how he's feeling now, because what I know as a lifetime ultra endurance athlete is that there is a lot more to these big multi-day events than simply the leg and the lungs and how fast you are. It's a really kind of mind, body, spirit experience. And sometimes it's really hard to articulate that. So you've all been asking Ted questions. What he's thinking? What is he feeling? And so we're going to get into that. Um, I will go back a little cause Ted doesn't brag about himself. Um, but I, you know, 
as any good podcaster should do, you do a little research on the person you're interviewing. So even though this is Ted's podcast, um, we've been friends for a little while. Um, you probably know this about him, but he was a world tour rider. U23, um, got right onto these pro teams, pro road racer from, uh, 2006 to 2015 really. And, um, amazing record. You know, you can look on his bio. It's pretty cool. He raced his bike all around the world, very, very fast and went straight from juniors to the pro ranks, um, and never looked back and earned some amazing accolades. And then in, uh, 2016, uh, he decided to find the dirt, which was pretty cool and went to, um, dirty Kansas now unbound, went to Leadville that year. And we'd met previously through, uh, SRAM, um, as both SRAM athletes when he was not yet on the dirt side. Um, mm -hmm. And so when Ted came over to dirt and started gravel racing, um, we, you know, we worked together and, and got to know him a little bit more and, and shared some of the tips that I knew about Leadville and, and racing in Kansas on gravel. He's come to private Idaho. And then, yeah, from 2016 till now has done some awesome racing on, on the off-road scene. And most recently, uh, kind of, a close to my heart, um, really dabbling and in getting into self-supported really long ultra endurance bike packing events. So you thought pro road racing were long events, Ted. Um, yeah, <laughs> tour divide is kind of different. So I do want to ask you first, um, the longest road race you ever did in your pro tour career was how many miles, how many days? Um, terrific lead in, um, <laughs> I, I will often think for days on end about how I'm going to do my intro and you just knocked it out of the park. So that was outstanding. Um, let's see. My longest road race is somewhere in the ballpark of 250 to 260 miles. Um, sorry, kilometers. So that's 150 to 160 miles. Yeah. Uh, and that would either be a world championship Mm -hmm. typically quite long um uh uh flanders and roubaix are quite long but then it, the most memorable that sticks out to me is when i did my first giro so i just got back just just made it to europe i'm doing my first grand tour and we did three back-to-back -back stages in the 2009 giro that were at least 250k so i think it was like 250, 245, 260 on consecutive back to back to back days. And that was flummoxing because up until that point, I'd never done anything like that. And there we are at like, you know, day 11 of a grand tour. So, okay. So that's a great lead in into the tour divide. So that's pretty impressive in a grand tour in the Giro doing day after day after day of, you know, many miles, many kilometers, yep. but I'm going to remind the listeners that you got to sleep every night and you got to stay in a hotel room and you got to take a shower. Bikepacking is not like that. Tour divide is not like that. And so for anyone who doesn't really know anything about it, you start, the clock starts, you know, at the border and, um, it doesn't stop until you're finished. So anytime you want to stop, you want to sleep. There's no swan years. There's no one to do your laundry. There is no one to tune your bike. Mm -hmm. So really like kind of an amazing departure from what you were used to really not saying 
you know, pro tour riding is easy in any aspect because the pace is super high. You know, it's a different, it's a different beast and probably your preparation doing multi-day events there really kind of help lead you into doing multi-day, um, nonstop events like the tour divide, but, um, but a totally different beast where you really are on your own. You're carrying everything you need on the bike and you're deciding when you stop, where you eat, what you do, you're taking care of your own bike. Um, so it's, it's really a huge commitment. And I kind of want to know first off why you wanted to do this. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> because it's really hard and awful and you get bloated and you you're yeah uh-huh. all these weird things happen to your body but why'd you want to do it that is such a good question um i think i think bikepacking is is this next frontier for me um and doing uh doing things that really take oneself take myself out of my comfort zone um, and I think one really good place to do that is bike packing. Um, you know, I've raced on the road, I've raced mountain bikes, I've raced gravel, uh, done stage racing on, on pavement, on gravel, uh, to pay homage to RPI. Um, but, but truly bike packing is this, this next crazy frontier where you are. It takes a page out of this previous chapter of my life, like you were alluding to but it's a totally different sport, you know? Okay. The act of pedaling is the same, but, but, um, the self-sufficiency that is required in bikepacking makes it just a totally different sport than, um, than world tour racing. I mean, almost in the same way that like, you know, a hundred meter dash is so much different than, uh, a marathon or an ultra marathon. They're just, they're entirely different sports, even though they're both the act of running. So, um, it's intriguing. It's interesting. It's, it's such a bucket list item in a big way. Uh, in the same way, shoot. I mean, I think you raise gravel and you say, you know, here are the bucket list, three things that I really want to do in my, my gravel career. So, uh, I remember it probably pinged on my radar maybe five or six years ago. Um, at that point, it seems so outlandish as to be comical. And then I've done a few more bikepacking things in my in my back pocket to to familiarize myself with it. And I thought, dang, you know, if twenty, it was actually at Laura's nudging that twenty twenty three became the year. It was sometime in the middle of last year. She's like, well, I guess twenty twenty three is the year. Um, it's sort of that that Warren Miller uh, expression, if. If not this year, then you're going to be one year older when you finally do. So, yeah, sometimes I love that our other people, the people closest to us are kind of like, yeah, what are you waiting for? You know, Um, and I will say, you know, curiosity is a big motivator. And and I'll also say I, I really, you know, I think you and I are similar and I really admire the fact that the the sort of chapters and evolution of your bike racing career. People ask me and they probably ask you all the time, like, when are you going to retire? And it's like, I'm like riding my bike is what I love to do. And it may look different now than it looked when I was 30 or it may look different when I'm 70, but I'm not going to retire from the act of doing something that I love. And so I really, I really admire your trajectory of road racing, mountain bike, gravel, 
um, exploratory, what I call adventure riding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think of, you know, your career and, and mine as well is it's, it's not a, like this, then this, then this it's a spiral. And so everything on the inside of the spiral is making room for the next layer, the next layer, the next circle. And so for all of you out there who want to know when Ted King's going to retire from bike riding and I am, um, we're going to keep spiraling, which is actually really cool. And everything that you did in your tour career, those skills that you learned of that mental fortitude, you know, suffering, pain, all that stuff that is is building has built on what you're doing now and i think it's really cool that you did something that's scary um and you know spoiler alert ted didn't finish the tour divide and we're going to talk about that he actually dropped out he made a decision um and he didn't finish so i guess the first question before we dive into that is would you do it again are you going (laughs) back uh it, it was one of those that in the moment, as I was stopping, as in the immediate aftermath, first 24, 36 hours afterwards, I was like, not a chance. It was great experience. Got it done. And already within a week, um, here we are probably what? I mean, people are still racing tomorrow. If they finish tonight, I suppose, then that's record setting pace. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I'm. I'm highly intrigued and highly interested in doing it again. One word, one word answer. Yes. Uh, There's, there's some shades of gray in there. I will say that's a normal, that's a normal sentiment after, you know, putting yourself out there to do something big and scary. You don't, you don't make it. um, And there's still the intrigue of like, could I do it? So, so let's say you decided you're going to do it. Laura gave you a nudge. You committed um, almost a year, I think, to yourself, almost a year or nine months or so ahead of the event. Is that right? Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah. And so so in those nine months where you were like, did you change your training? Did you like tell us about your kind of your process getting up to the event? And I want to know. I want to know mental process. I want to know equipment, basically Mm -hmm. mind, body, and brain. Like how did you get all three of those things ready? Um, Well, I guess brain and mind are kind of the same, but how'd you get your equipment and yourself and your head ready for this kind of thing? I think starting with the hardware is probably the easiest because the, uh, Looking back, I suppose my my brain, my mindset sort of followed the the natural evolution of of preparing for it. You know, what I what I've joked about is I have the support of amazing sponsors in the industry, and it still took me the better part of nine months to get everything prepared to the last moment. So the joke being like, how do civilians do this event? It is it is so hardware intensive. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, getting the right dynamo hub set up on your wheel, set up on a different fork, set up on a f- uh, frame that I don't ride traditionally, um, getting all the right bags dialed, having the 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 time to be riding the bikes, to be sure that all of the equipment that you've chosen is correct, so on and so forth. So for first and foremost, I need to thank all of my partners because uh, without them, there's no chance that I could have... <laughs> made it to the start line in 2023. I'd probably be ready by 2026. 
Um, I mean, it's a super good point. And, and I'll just point out that like, because you, you're basically riding a hotel on wheels, yeah. you've got to carry everything with you. And so the storage and you've got to charge things as you go. And that's the dynamo hub. Um, you, you know, you might bring one pair of short, you're carrying everything. And so the carrying yeah. capacity is actually probably something that intimidates a lot of people for bike packing is how do I carry all the stuff? Like yeah. I want to do this, but how do I carry all this stuff? So how were you kind of, seeking out like different options for bags or how are you kind of educating yourself on this? Yeah. Uh, a lot of time online, a lot of time on forums, looking at what other people have done. Um, the speaking with individuals, talking to, to probably Jay Peterberry was the first person I talked to. Um, talking to Nico, a very dear friend in the SRAM family, uh, who's done a single speed talking to, Chaz, same story. He didn't do the tour divide, but he's done a lot of uh, bike packing trips. Um, talking to Lael, who of course probably has more experience than, than most people. Um, and then it's a matter of getting the bags and seeing what works. So Apadura is a leader in the industry in waterproof bags. So I was, I was communicating with them. They're based in the UK and they know a thing or two about precipitation. And that was my my benchmark. I'm like, I need a waterproof bag, waterproof bag, waterproof bag. Our event was so wet in the, the, the quarter of the event that I rode, uh, that my stuff was still soaked through. So like, uh, pro tip, put your stuff in dry bags within your waterproof bags. Um, and then also, uh, I have a very good friend named Matt Musa who runs moose packs and he has been trying to get me to use, he, he makes great handlebar bags, bar bags, saddle bags. Um, but he's just starting to explore what he can do with, with bike packing stuff. And he was very proud that he has, he has at least two people with full bag sets that he created for their tour divide this year. And so, um, when I found out that my frame bag from Apadura wasn't fitting, he put together, uh, his best rendition of a waterproof bag and it came out magnificently well. So yeah, hardware is first and foremost, get your bike, get your wheels, get your handlebars, et cetera, dialed. And you will probably be tinkering with those right up to the last minute. And then, uh, getting the bag system set up, figuring out what bags you are going to, to use. If you spend a lot of time on forums, and I'm saying like you, if you do this, if you do this, these are all things that I did first person, uh, obviously trying to figure out my plan. You you look at people's bag setups and are they doing a massive frame bag or a massive saddle bag or, or are they skipping one thing? Are they doing like a half frame bag because they happen to have a lot of stuff in their handlebar bags? I didn't know what the solution was going to be. And that that's where it really comes down to this trial and error, uh, which is also a little bit wacky because trial and error is packing as if you are out doing the experience with all of the equipment, but it's hard to amalgamate all of your tools, all of your clothes, all of your everything into one place at one time and say, this is going to be it because you're always tinkering. So it's, I found it really difficult to be like hard and fast. This is my setup. This is the closing I'm going to use. This is the, the number of tubes I'm going to bring so on and so forth because there's just so much tinkering right up to the very moment that, that you hit or whatever, 7am where you start pedaling. I love hearing you say that because I will tell you myself, Jay Peterberry, who's probably like a grandfather of bikepacking. So experienced, 
Um, and, and I've used him as a resource as well. He's amazing. At, I will say people are great at sharing experience, but um, even Jay, even me, like I don't have one setup that's the same every time. Um, we were texting right before you started and I was heading out and I'm like, I'm supposed to go tomorrow on a three-day ride. I don't actually know which bike I'm using yet. Right. And so for anyone who's getting into this, that you have to embrace the tinkering because there's never one setup, um, for one event. You know, I do a different setup for Alaska every year because I find something new or I get a different jacket that I really love. Um, and so it's kind of part of the process. You have to have sort of this engineering brain that is okay with that. And even pro pro people, and you have to be fluid enough, I think, to change it. So um, I, I'll want to ask you with the setup that you had for Tour Divide, you got, you know, you did a quarter of the event, which was still what, five, five days on the bike. Yeah. Um, five days, 750 miles or so. Yeah. Okay. A lot longer than the Giro um, in <laughs> mileage. Um, five days, 750 miles. You're sending pictures of your face all puffy in a hotel room. And um, so from that setup that you got some pretty good practice on it, you yep. already said you want to do it again. What would you change from your setup, from the bike to the gears, to the bags? Are there any glaring things that like, oh yeah, I'm keeping this or I'm changing this? I wish I had that. I'm working on a blog now where I break down every single, every single thing I brought full stop, like down to the number of, uh, what are they called? Dyna plugs. Yeah. Dyna plugs. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to list every single thing I brought. I'm halfway through it. I've worked through the whole bike portion and the second edition is going to be everything, all the clothes I brought, all the, everything that basically goes into a bag. With the exception of, I think I was overgeared by a single gear. Um, at the last minute, I swapped from a 36 tooth front chainring to a 38 because I was just having not ridden any of the course. Intuitively, I thought it was, oh, it's a rolling gravel course for 2,700 miles. You quickly realize on day one when you're going up these like 15 to 25% pitches that you, you would prefer to have easy gearing than hard gearing. Um, that is the most glaring things. But okay. You know, hardware, tires, bikes, uh, I mean, the macro, right? Like a lot of people do it on gravel bikes, drop bar gravel bikes. A lot of people do it on mountain bikes, full suspension, hardtail, uh, rigid. I wouldn't change a single thing of my bike setup, which was a hardtail with front suspension. That that's actually really awesome for your first time committing to this, this big of a multi-day thing to say, oh, I wish I had, you know, one slightly change of gears. That's, that's pretty good. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think inevitably every single person would be like, how do I create a lighter setup? Um, yeah. <laughs> and it was day four. We, I had just gone over a pass and riding with Chris Burkhart. We, it starts nuking rain out of nowhere. Like it's one of these bright sunshiny days. And all of a sudden you see these black clouds roll in and lightning and the whole nine yards. Um, as you know very well, like you need your mind always needs to be working proactively. And so at that point, instead of saying in a normal situation, you'd be like, okay, I'm gonna make this descent and make it home and take a shower afterwards. You proactively in that moment think, I'm gonna put on, I'm gonna pull over, stop riding, stop making progress, but put on my rain pants, put on my rain jacket and get warm and make sure that I don't go hypothermic in the next 15 minutes. Um the punchline of my story is there. Chris and I are, uh, we pull over under this hunting cabin awning 
to put on our rain clothes and we're catching up over, you know, the previous four days of riding. And he's like, you know what? I don't think I need to bring a sleep system. And truth be told, I, I was ag- agreeing tremendously with what he's saying, because you basically go through a town every single day at minimum one town. And so if you really plotted it right, and I think that that Sofian, who uh, won it last year, and and the best people who know what they're capable of and know how to just like make it objective, I'm going to go ride from point A to point B today, no matter what, you can pull it off and stay in hotels and therefore get a warm bed, get a shower, clean your bike off, so on and so forth. And furthermore, to the deriving point that we're getting at, save four pounds of, of packing gear. Don't bring a saddlebag. Don't bring a, a bivy. Don't bring a, a, a sleeping bag. You can save a heck of a lot of weight. Would you do that next time? It would certainly cross my mind. And in talking to him, in talking to Chris, I'm like, I get it. It was, and it was that very morning that I used the bivy to take a nap at 11 a.m. And I'm just like, if I didn't have that, I don't know what I would have done. I mean, I was nodding off first thing in the morning, not first thing. Yeah. I think we should ask Chris that question. Uh, he's still going. He's doing sure. great. Um, so I, I would love I'm going to ask him that question afterwards. Would you still it's it's, uh, you know, on paper at home and maybe on day five. It sounds pretty good on day 14. It's a risk. It's a risk that you are going to get to where you think you're never going to have a mechanical. You're not going to need to take a nap at 11 a.m. when you're falling asleep, hallucinating. So mm-hmm. it's definitely, you know, you weigh the options of like risk versus reward versus safety versus you know there's a lot of choices to be made yeah. but that's yeah that that would be bold <laughs> it's bold i mean then you know you could say okay i'll i'll hedge the bed that i can do it and then i'll pull off bring in one of those sol sos mm-hmm. those the tiny yeah. things that weigh as much as a, a you know candy bar wrapper but yeah. total yeah to your point massive risk so, potential okay huge, you know. So let's go. So we're going to kind of do before, during, after bike, body, brain. So we're, we're kind of still on before your bike is nailed. You wouldn't hardly change anything. You might risk it and not take a sleeping bag. Mm -hmm. Um, but before, so I want to know, did your training change? Did you kind of, what was your physical prep, um, for this? I knew I had plenty of fitness, Um, 2022 is an interesting year with my pulmonary embolism and not competing for half the year and, and just sort of taking an interesting, I don't want to say step back, but I'll call it a massive lateral step in terms of training and and racing. And like I said, talking to Jay Peterberry from the very beginning, he's, he was one of the first people I I spoke with and he said, Ted, your fitness is never going to be a deterrent. Right. And I recognize that there's 250 people or so who are in this event, and I'm probably going to have the best pure fitness or among the you know one, top 1% from an interesting objective view that, that, that comes from traditional bike riding. Like I said, 15 minutes ago, this is a totally different sport. And so there was uh, a gentleman I talked to who's still in it and his name fails me and I apologize. Uh, he did a 800 mile bike packing race two or three weeks before tour divide, like massive sleep deprivation for, okay. Obviously a much shorter period of time, not two weeks, but that is optimal training. 
you might look at what Lael does by riding for a month and a half to the start of Tour Divide and say that's bananas, but that is optimal training. Um, my optimal training, especially having two kids now under three years old, is catch as catch can. Um, if I see an opportunity to ride for a long period of time and I get Laura's blessing to do it and and the ability to get away for a few days, I do it. And that basically in my mind, that is one big day of training, one massive day of training. Um, it's tough to link together three, four five days of all day riding. Like that's virtually impossible. So I wasn't worried about for you, like for the general population, as you said as well, most of the people doing this ride are not professional athletes. Right. You know, so yeah. No, completely. It's a, it's, it is such a broad swath of, of a bike riding demographic out there, which is so awesome. So your train, your, your training is not going to be your limiting factor. So when you talk to JP about that, he's like, Hey, your fitness is going to be totally fine. Mm-hmm. What did he, did he allude to? What would be your limiting factor? He or didn't allude to it, but he was identify that now. <laughs> I mean, ironically, in some way training is what, what took me out. And we can talk about that now or talk about it later. Uh, well, yeah, let's talk about, we can, we can dive into it now. So tell us why, you know, tell us, um, walk us through, we'll just go right into it. So your training was fine. You did the prep, you talked to a bunch of people, um, you know, so let's get into during the race. So during the race, you were happy with your gear. You wished you had maybe a little easier gear, mm-hmm. um, which is always a good idea because, because especially in ultra endurance events, you know, as you get to day five, 10, 20, whatever it's going to be, you've got a lot less reserves, you know, you're not, you're strongest on the beginning of the ride. So if you were feeling that in the first five days, then yeah, you may even go two gears down, Right. <laughs> um, you know, um, but so, but during you're good with it, but take us, you're, you're at the start, you're, you're kicking off. You're, you seem very stoked to be there. You've been planning for nine months and it rolls out. Tell us kind of your sensations and, and sort of what the start was like with all those folks. It was amazing. Um, I wish, I wish it had been expressed to me that the level of angst and nerves and nervous energy that you're going to feel it's like this crescendo it's been building and and it keeps you up all night for the previous nine months not all night it would keep me up literally most nights uh for some fraction of the eat the the night some aspect of it i'd wake up and pee at 3 a.m and get back into bed and think i'm gonna go back to sleep and then just start thinking about what have i forgotten to pack what about this what about that blah 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 so it's just all of this nervous energy cut to the chase the second the event starts it goes away and you're you and it's it's so cool it is breathtakingly beautiful um the weather was nice which was really helpful like you know it's a different story if it's pouring down rain or snowing on you on day one which eventually it was later that day um but it was just this like such a relief to start riding all of the the questions in your mind are gone and then you have one thing to do which is to go pedal your bike which is terrific um that kind of focus and clarity is awesome yeah 
And we rarely get that. I feel the same way with, at big events. It's like, ah, la, 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 even up to five minutes before the start where your car's still there and you're like, ah, ah, do I have to go to the bathroom? And right. then you're like, my job is really clear and I have what I have and I figure it out. So mm-hmm. I can totally relate. You're not alone in that. And then you're just like, yes, I'm just doing this thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was so, so cool. nice. And so, okay, fast forward a couple hours. There were, there were eight of us, then seven of us, then six of us, and we're lead group. And I had a lot of people in the com- in the following days be like, wow, you guys were humming along. And you're not really humming along because you're riding a 15, no, you're riding a whatever, 40 to 50 pound bike. And I think we were averaging on pretty tame terrain, something like 13 miles an hour, 12 to 13, which I'm accustomed to riding on a road bike at 20 miles an hour. So I'm thinking this is kind of, this is great. Um, and I, I, I took a poll of everybody in our group and we were all first timers. So, <laughs> I was looking at that I, on track leaders. So I'm like, Oh, rookie, rookie, rookie. Right. <laughs> right. I'm like, guys, we might be doing something wrong if we're all feeling this good, this far ahead, blah, 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 blah. Um, stopped time is, is wasted time effectively. So that had been browbeaten into me um we were very efficient and one reason that that i think we pulled away so quickly is we just did not stop you pee off the bike um and take that back we would stop for the quickest period of time to get water but these hike a bike sections we did a hike a bike for basically 90 minutes one day and we did not stop it wasn't like you catch your breath and take a picture it's just go 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 uh Fast forward to the end of the day, a massive thunderstorm rolls in. Um, And then we have, I forget, 20-minute descent into Fernie. And it's pouring rain. It's freezing. It's super-duper muddy. And that was at mile 150. And I think, I forget what time it was, probably 8 o'clock at night. I had I had grand ambitions that day of riding 250 miles that morning, and there we are at 150 miles. And I say, "This is dumb. I'm going to stop here. Like I'm shivering." I know the the other three people that I'm with at this point. Sorry, we are four in total. They're cold and miserable, but they went what McDonald's and or gas station and kept going. I went to a. Uh, it's really cool. A place that advertises on the side of the road. They say uh, warm showers, laundry, hot meal. And I'm like, man, I'm getting, I'm going there immediately. Yeah, baby. And that set the precedent for what I ended up doing in my, my time in the race. Bear in mind the first, what, thousand miles you're in grizzly bear country and grizzly bears are one of those things that kept me up at night for the previous nine months. I'm much happier sleeping in a hotel than exposed as potential grizzly dinner. Well, yeah. And well, one, you wouldn't be that great at eating, but the rest, I really, I think you prioritizing your rest to get good sleep is gold, you know, and if you can get that outside, great. If you can get that inside, Mm -hmm. great. I want to go back. I have a quick question. You, you kind of said that you wanted to do 250 miles that day or whatever. Had you ahead of the race set out kind of uh, a timeline for what you thought you might, how long you thought it might take you or average miles per hour or number of days had, did you kind of have that in your head? My only blueprint was the fastest time on record is Mike Hall who did it a hair hours shy of two weeks. So he was like 13 days, 
20 hours, 22 hours, something like that. So call it 14 days. I was like, okay, I'll either do 14 to 17 days. That seems reasonable. Like throw in a three-day buffer outside of setting the record, of which I didn't think I was going to set the record. Uh, and I don't know, that seemed as reasonable as any. So that's the the amount of time that I'd basically put in my head as how long it was going to take. Cool. I love that you were kind of bold that like, I might do it in 14 days. Yeah, I know that sounds silly. (laughs) But you know, that's the fastest it's possibly going to be. Right. Well, and then I kept on joking that there's, is it Kobayashi? Who's the hot dog eating champion? (laughs) So up until Kobayashi, the record for hot dogs was like 36. And then it might get, the record might get broken and go to 37 or might go to 38. And then he came along and ate 72 hot dogs. So he basically just breaks the mold. So I was like, all right, instead of 14 days and then going 13 days, 19 hours, what if someone came along and just did the whole thing in nine days? Why not? I'm not saying I would be the one to do it, but like it takes that mindset. I listened to a great podcast with the the great Kobayashi. Uh, And you just have to break the mold if you want to do something totally outlandish. Anyway. Well, I want to go, this is a really good point to bring in because you, you've already, you've already mentioned it a few times that this is a different beast. Yes, your, your legs are moving in a circle on a wheeled vehicle, but it's so much more than bike riding. And you're talking about the mental aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you doubt yourself? Do you believe in yourself? Can you do it? You're spending before, during, and after a lot of time in your brain talking mm-hmm. to yourself in and out of things, giving yourself a pep talk. I'd, I'd love to go a little bit into like, what was your mental strategy other than, Hey, I might be Kobayashi. I might do this thing in five days. Right. And what if I do, you know, like yeah. I want to, let's talk about your mindset a little bit, maybe before, but then also during like the highs and lows of it, and maybe if you felt like you were really resilient in your mind, or if you you had some pitfalls or downfalls, and and maybe some of the like tips you were doing to to stay mentally strong, because a hundred percent your brain, the body's gonna break down, hundred uh-huh. percent. You keep your legs moving around, but the brain is really the biggest um, the biggest tool you can bring with you to to help yeah. you do well. So I'd love to know about what's going on up there. Um, I felt, I mean, I'll sort of walk you through the the chronology. So that first night I felt like that was the best decision that I could make. I'm going to stop, get a warm meal, clean clothes, clean my bike, so on and so forth. Because my mind was so switched on, I could not sleep that night, which is, is I was not the only person who didn't sleep. Um, but it was not a, a successful recipe for the coming days. I think I probably slept an hour and a half, if that, in a warm bed, in a, in a sheltered place with a warm meal in my belly. Um, I got going the next day and was humming along and and passed a lot of the people that had passed me because they had ridden, you know, 200 plus miles. Um, another thing that had crossed my mind, and this is diving into the details is yeah i set out that morning knowing okay the the lofty goal is 250 miles um there's a cabin at 200 there's a cabin at 217 so maybe those would be the two places that i sleep otherwise but then even deeper into the minutia what i didn't want to do is end up in the cabin 
be the first one in or the first three people set up shop, try to go to sleep. And then for the next six hours, have people rolling in and try to sleep and try to nudge you and, and you know, just make noise and, and make for a restless nice night of sleep. Ironically, there I am sleeping alone in my hotel room and I get a restless night of sleep. So that kind of sucked. Um, I really enjoyed the camaraderie on day one. Um, as it was pointed out to me, it was a very international group. We had a Lithuanian who we shared a lot of friends from my, or a handful of friends from Lithuania, my world tour days, um, a German who I'd met the previous two weeks at Unbound, really nice guy, Ulrich, who the two of them continue to crush it. Um, what else? We did have another American. Someone thought he was Canadian and that's why he was pointing out that we were, uh, I was the leading American. There was a, a, a Belgian up there. There was a Frenchman and yeah, it was cool to have this really international, internationally diverse group of folks. It was also kind of mentally taxing because I was trying to do like a linguistic dance and speak English was the common language, but then we were also often speaking in other languages. Um, we're exchanging conversation and joking with each other, but it was like the jokes weren't hitting with me. And so I'd have to be like, what? Say that again. And I'd ask to be repeated two or three times. My whole point is I kind of, after day one, I was like, you know what? I kind of just want to ride by myself. I can be in my own rhythm. I understand the cadence of things. I don't want to stop so on and so forth. I'm just going to ride largely by myself, which, okay, that's quite an undertaking for 2,700 miles, but that seems like a, a successful recipe. Um, and you're you know, spending emotional energy, you know, and mental energy. And, it, you know, your brain burns more calories often, requires more glucose than often your muscles do. So that makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense. And I guess if you rode by yourself, you get your own jokes, too. Or you exactly. tell your own jokes. <laughs> Completely. Yeah, you're a, you're a comedian. Um, and, I mean, let me qualify that. I would often, I would ride with people for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. I rode with Lael every day and she's, you know, she's such a force of positive energy. She was a great person to chat with. Uh, I only saw Alex house a couple of times, but we were communicating and, and, you know, he's a friend and ally out there. Um, and then all the other folks who are just, they're immediately your friend by the association of being in the, in the race. Yeah. So it's not as though I'm solo for this foreseeable 14 to 17 ish days. Um, there was also something a tiny bit stressful about keeping the pace of as we're riding in this group that's not stopping. You know, it's frustrating when you're like, well, I got to pee. There's not a good roller here for me to pee off the bike. Whereas when you're at your own pace, you're like, I'm just going to stop here. I'm going to pee for 30 seconds and get going. It's not going to be a big loss. And so there was right. sort of this, this uh, one-upsmanship that I didn't love on the first day that I, I, I wanted to step out of. And therefore that was another reason I wanted to ride solo. Mm -hmm. um, Did you get lonely you, when you were riding solo? Were you like craving, you know, a few minutes with somebody or roll into a town and want to talk to somebody or were you totally good in your own head? I was totally good. I had my podcast, I had my audiobooks, books, uh, my music. I had the, you know, you talk to somebody every four hours, um, yeah. you go to the store and where are you riding today? Well, how much time do you got? Because I got a funny story. I'm riding to Mexico. Um, I was totally fine with it. I was very positive about it. And and that was helpful. Uh, day two was cool because we rode into 
Whitefish, um, where my friend Jess Sarah is, where uh, I'm familiar with the bike shop there. Um, uh, you know, just being in the in the geography that you know is really helpful, especially over the expanse of this event that I 99.9% don't know. So that was that was really positive. Um, terrific weather that day. We only got rained on a little bit. So still going guns and blazing that day. Woke up that on day three, and that was the beginning of my eyes showing this this fatigue. And I get when I say eyes showing fatigue, you can look at my social media. I get these bags under my eyes that are that are very puffy and very uh abnormal looking. Um but I know that I have that as a symptom of riding a lot as a result of doing Arkansas high country. Um, I just get massively puffy. Nothing too wild that day. Um, I mean, so basically I'm like marching up to the, the point of the chase, which is get into Butte, Montana, uh, start riding the morning of day five. I get about an hour south of Butte, um, and I'm about to do a 180-mile stretch to get to the town of Lima, and there is virtually nothing for that 180-mile stretch, and I just, I wasn't feeling well. I was feeling nauseated. I felt sick. I pulled over once or twice and sort of like barfed up a little mouthful of throw-up. Was this the first kind of the beginning of day five was the first like physical bit of breakdown you were feeling? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it felt, I felt fine the previous four days. Um, The only thing that was, I guess, abnormal is I think those are both 16 hour days Mm -hmm. and the final hour and a half. It's one of those sensations where, where, you're at zone one power at your theoretical power zones. And it feels like every ounce of energy you could possibly put into the pedals allows you to do your weakest possible power output. It's just, you are so, so empty. And so I try to think of it from a physiological standpoint, like your body is just completely out of glycogen. Um, so you are, you're empty. Uh, I had really tempered my, my effort at that point, I mean, it's funny to look at my power file. It's 2023 is the first time I've ever had a power meter on my bike. And all it is is zone one, zone two, the whole day, you know, 16 hours of zone one, zone two. Like I don't do tempo. I don't do threshold. I don't do sprints. You're just humming along at a very diesel rate. Um, let me think of other qualifiers. My strategy, which I didn't have a strategy until it was unfolding in front of me, was to sleep in hotels. So I slept better on day two, slept better on day three, slept better on day four. It allows you to be in a town that you're going to get a meal. So like go get a burrito, go get some sort of substantial dinner and then go to sleep and wash yourself, watch your, wash your bike. I mean, hygiene is such a critically important thing Mm -hmm. as a result of stopping for a considerable period of time, instead of just pulling over on the side of the road and going to sleep, I had the highest average speed of anybody in the event, which mm-hmm. I don't, in at the time I, you know, it was, a it was sort of circumstantial that it was happening. It wasn't like I was going out and on any day and being like, today I'm going to hammer and have the highest average speed. There was absolutely zero of that. 
And now, even in hindsight, I don't know if I would really change that because I love sleeping in a bed. I love the the prioritization of hygiene, et cetera. So I don't know what I would do, go a tiny bit easier. I mean, we still haven't gotten to push comes to shove of what the what ultimately stopped me. So I'll continue the story. I, I woke up day five, start riding, ride about an hour south, just feel totally off, feel not well, feel sick, feel I have a headache. I feel like I'm breathing kind of awkward. We're at, I don't know, 6,000 feet. So knowing that we're going to go up to 11 plus in the coming week, like 6,000 feet seems like sea level. Um, my eyes are super baggy and I, I just felt really swollen everywhere. I looked down and I had cankles from my socks. I couldn't really get in the arrow position because even though that arrow position is higher than any sort of traditional TT position that I've been in, every time I go down, my head was just pulsing. It was like my whole torso was, was swollen. So I'm just wildly uncomfortable. I know that I'm about to go into the abyss and just not really have any sort of um, amenities for the next entire day. Plus, I stop. I start uh, uh, using my phone and trying to get Wi-Fi signal. And I get a phone call at that point from somebody who owns a fishing camp about 50 miles up the road. And that was going to be the potential one stop for the day. And he called and said, no, we don't have any, we don't have any, uh, there's no room at the end, so to speak. And that's where I started to get nervous. Cause like, that was my bailout option. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, man, I just do not feel well at all. Were so I, it, it was cause, yeah. cause I so then the next person I communicate with is Laura. I call her up. I'm just like, man, I, I'm not in general. I'm not one to complain. It's like, I put my head down and do it. So she thought it was a little bit odd that I was calling and, you know, an event like this certainly uh, tears your emotions down. So I'm like on the side of the road crying, telling her I don't feel well. And she's very supportive, but it's, we're still at a point of like, well, you're just going to sort of soldier through. So she's being supportive and says, okay, you know, maybe you can ride to that town of 50 miles up the road. And there's a camping site across the street. Like you can sit up there and camp. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, we say goodbye. And she then she texts me. And it's a miracle that I have reception. And I'm able to do any of this in the first place. And she says, don't forget our friend, who I won't say his name, who he's an ultra runner. And he had hyponatremia once where, you know, you're so focused on hydration. He actually overhydrated and then uh, had a seizure and went, I think he went into a brief coma. And don't forget about him. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh. I'm about to go into the the wild wilderness of Montana with no support. And I have that to lean on. And then I I call my PCP at that point. We talk for 15 minutes. The punchline is it is suggested that I backtrack that hour, ride back to Butte, which is, you know, a city of 25,000, but it's most certainly a city. And it's the last city I'm going to see for a couple of days and go make sure everything's okay. So I ride, ride back, go directly to the hospital, check could myself. Had, do you, could you have made this decision? What does, if you hadn't had reception, do you think you would have made that decision on your own? Oh, that's a tremendous question. Uh, man, 
I, I probably would have kept going. Mm-hmm. I was very reluctant to go back, yeah. but it was, but it was so reassuring to be told to do yeah. it by my yeah. PCP. When I say my PCP, he's a cyclist, he's an athlete, he's a friend, he's been following the race. So he's not just like Joe doctor who yeah. checks my vitals every six months, you know, like he's also invested in this race and he wants to see me do well. And he knows that it's going to be heartbreaking for me to go back 20 miles. So yeah, their reassurance helped a lot. Uh, with nothing else to do, rode myself into the ER and explained. Have you seen other people and coming the other way and they're like, what's, are you okay? Did you have yeah. to do all that? Like oh, totally. Yeah. I was, <laughs> I tried to hitchhike, but there's so few cars um, that that didn't work out. And actually, that was kind of funny because there I am riding my bike so as to make progress back. I put my thumb out. But any car that went by me thought I was trying to signal the turn by putting my arm out. So they would like stop behind me as if I'm going to turn left and cut across them. And and then I'd wave my, you know, they zoom by and I wave my arms being like, no, I, I need a ride. So I wanted to get a ride a to get to the hospital faster B to not lose time C to not be seen by my friends and competitors because it's, you know, they want to know, am I off course? Are they off course? Yeah. Why are you backtracking? Um, Like that was probably mentally exhausting to just be like, uh, completely. Yeah. Yeah, I probably saw a half dozen people. You just want to disappear. And thankfully towards the end, I could go off course Basically, when you're going to remove yourself from the course, you're allowed to do that by any means, as long as you get back to that point on course where you start making progress again. Okay, so it would have been legal for you to hitch a ride. Yeah. And then ride and hitch a ride even back to where you were. Yeah. And start progress again. Okay, so at this point, you're just going back to get checked. You're not pulling from the race. Correct. No, I'm still... Planning on very much being in the race. Uh, go into the hospital, explain my symptoms, headache, nausea, uh, uh, I'm super swollen, just don't feel right. I feel like I'm in a brain fog. I must feel like I'm hungover. Mm-hmm. Um, which actually symptomatically does sound a lot like hyponatremia. Yeah. It did, you know, what are they going to do? Like, I'm not going to get a scan. So they do a bunch of blood tests and... Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes back that I have real mild case of rhabdomyalgia, rab- no rhabdomyolysis, which is breakdown of your muscles. It's sort of a cannibalization of your muscles. Any ER doc or, or physician who's listening to this is going to be like, you're a terrible at explaining this, but this is the way it's been that I, I best understand it. It's the breakdown of your muscles in such a way that your kidneys then have to do the 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 breaking down and your muscle breakdown is such a uh, obtuse thing that it's really hard on your kidneys and if it happens really badly then you can get acute kidney failure and i'm gonna read it here rhabdomyolysis often called rhabdo is a serious medical condition that can be fatal or result in permanent disability rhabdo occurs when damaged muscle tissue releases its proteins and electrolytes into the blood these substances can damage the heart and kidneys, cause permanent disability or even death. So you had a mild form of a rhabdo. <laughs> I had a mild form of rhabdo and dehydration. And it was kind of hard, nice to hear dehydration because I'm like, okay, well, 
I'm not hyponatremic, which again, to the listener means you've had too much hydration and you can like drown your brain and kill yourself that way. Um, and when I say mild, it's, they do, uh, they look at a CT, uh, sorry, CK, and it's, they're looking at a number and the number can range from basically zero to hundreds of thousands. And I'm, I'm way higher than a normal zone, but way lower than hundreds of thousands. Like I probably finish Paris-Roubaix or a Grand Tour and have a high CK value. What, what is expressed to me as I'm sitting there is basically the immediate aftermath is, Hey, we recommend you take one more night rest stay the night in Butte, get another check tomorrow, do another blood test tomorrow. And if that number has not resolved itself, then it's, you're going to have to make a, a serious decision on, on the future of your race and how long it's going to take and so on and so forth. So, okay. okay at this point, it's what 11 AM. I sort of, I'm five days in and I see how far the people at the front of the race are, are riding away. And then I, I have since absorbed that I'm sort of in it as I'm a participant. I'm trying to be a fast participant, but I'm I'm not racing for the win. I'm not racing for the record. I'm just here for this crazy, wild, fun adventure. Um, I then go kill the day in Butte, which entails they're like <laughs> eat a lot and rest a lot. So I go order an entire pizza and crush a pizza by myself. There's no place to check into hotels until 3 p.m. So ironically, I'm sort of just like killing time being alert and awake around town. I then meet uh, Rob. I think a fella named Rob. I mean, I feel like I'm doing like the AT trail and becoming a, a ultra hiker or whatever <laughs> the heck you call it, through hiker, and everybody has their funny names. I meet this gentleman who's like, hey, man, I heard that you're, that you're, I saw your tracker and you're out of the race. It turns out this guy is in the race. He had broken his axle. He had gone to the bike shop. He had rented a hotel for two nights thinking that he was going to need two nights to get everything fixed. He got his bike fixed and therefore he had this spare hotel. He's like, just go check in under my name. And so I ended up spending the night in his uh, best Western courtesy (laughs) of using his name. Um, And I don't know. Fast forward to the next day, go back to the hospital first thing, go to the clinic, get a test. Um, at this point and all night, I'm just sort of unraveling with what what is the outcome. I'm talking to friends, I'm talking to family, I'm talking to my PCP, I'm talking to other racers. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Depending on the, the outcome of this number. The number has improved overnight, but it's still well north of normal. So I speak to the physician and he's like, you can continue the ride, but what is going to prevent this from coming back? What is going to prevent this from getting worse? You could ride 10% easier, 15% easier, 20% easier. And then I'm thinking, okay, in this event that I've sort of allotted a 15-ish day window is suddenly going to take me 25-ish days. I'm not comfortable with that. I have allotted a period of time. I have a busy summer. I have a family at home. That's my first priority. I have a family at home and they've been very generous with their time and allow me to do this. And when I talked to Laura, she's like, stay out there, do, do what you need to do. We are perfectly comfortable and fine at home. Yeah. But I guess I wasn't, I hearing those timelines, I, I wasn't okay with it. And I, did a heck of a lot of thinking and talking and knowing that, I mean, then it's like these funny intangibles. Father's Day was coming up. 
my father, in the time that I left home this spring and went to California to start this crazy spring travel schedule, uh, my father had moved into a, a assisted living, I mean, effectively a nursing home. And so I haven't seen him in his new environment. And then in Father's Day is coming up at me as a father, what, a week later and just wanting I was, it was tugging at the heartstrings and I'm like, I just need to be home. This is not my event this year. Do you uh, think the the super fatigue made you sort of emotionally more vulnerable? Like the physical fatigue? Yeah. I, I, uh, ineloquently alluded to that when I was talking about being on the side of the road, talking to Laura on the phone. Yeah. I think mental fatigue is, is a real easy way to see your emotions or just run them ragged. Can I ask you, I, I mean, you're, you're Ted King professional bike racer, you know, as you said, the 1% fittest person probably, and I would not argue with that on the course. Was there part of your ego that was like, I can't be middle of the pack. Like I can't be, 25 days when the record is 14 like was there any of that sort of like it's not good enough for me no no and i mean that sincerely i mean that genuinely i i think i think it was much more the i i can't i can't put it on my family to be out here this long even if they say i can i can't I, I mean, maybe in hindsight, I shouldn't have marked any period of time in my mind. And part of the reason I said whatever I said was because I learned 24 hours before the start that there is a rollout. There is state staggered starts based on when you anticipate finishing. And I wanted to start at the front. So I'm like, yeah, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll mark 14 days because I know a half dozen other people have also. And I want to start in the first wave. So no, not an ego thing. And I think, you know, a big part of that is where my sporting career has gone in the past year as a result of the pulmonary embolism and just being okay with not always fighting for a win. Um, Were you worried about that part of your health? Were you worried about the pulmonary embolism? Were there other things that you were like, or is that, that's in the past? Uh, That's in the past. Like the two things are unrelated. The pulmonary embolism and the rhabdo are entirely unrelated as far as I understand it, as far as it's been explained to me. But that was a reality check a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so similarly, yeah, it's like when you, you're being, you're in the hospital bed, you're in the ER and you're getting told worst case scenario, everything you just listed when you read what rhabdo means, it's like... I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. I can't have that. So yeah, it's sort of a little bit of grabbing, grabbing you by the collar and being shaken and being like, this ain't for you, man. Not this year. Um, well, one thing I will say, you know, you know, I'm glad you did have cell coverage because uh, as you said, you probably would have pushed on without the reasonable advice of your friends and family who said, Hey, go back and get checked out. So that's a super good thing. And, and to make a difficult decision, 20, 20, a quarter into an event that you plan for, you know, thinking of been thinking about for five years planned really specifically for nine months, 
put it out into the world. I mean, that's hard to make the decision to step down and, and to leave. So you made that decision. Like, what were you feeling? How were you, you know, what was your emotional state? Oh man. I wish I could, I almost wish we could backtrack in time to when it was and have this live conversation then, because it it almost feels like a lifetime ago, even though it was what a week ago, it just, uh, I feel so extracted from that now that it feels like a different experience entirely. Um, what did I feel? I, I'm sure I felt a huge sense of relief. I remember saying that often is as equal sense relief as it is sadness. Yeah. Um, I mean, probably easier being a quarter of the way in than nine tenths of the way in and getting that diagnosis or, or even halfway through. So it's almost simpler to have it from the beginning. It was, reassuring wildly reassuring to be told that there is something wrong instead of just being like oh, i guess you're really fatigued man like <laughs> good luck um it was really really hard and it, so yeah it was tough i'm I, it was tough being out there alone um yeah i could facetime my family i could talk to friends i I spent a lot of time as i've alluded to talking to friends and on the phone Mm -hmm. in that period uh and then it's almost as though like the the smoothness with which i was extracted and it became uh, like i made the decision that i'm done uh it was like it was meant to be in a way. So the extraction was such that a friend of mine lives in Bozeman, which is an hour outside of Butte. The morning that I rode south for an hour, he messaged me and said, "Hey, man, I'm gonna. I'm thinking about bringing my our daughters out and cheering you on and in whatever 200 miles or something." And I kind of ignored the text because it turns out texting on a bumpy road is is way harder than it it should be. So I was gonna wait to to text him amid a variety of other texts. Um, uh, let me think. I texted him later that afternoon being like, Hey, my day has totally gone sideways. Here I am in the hospital. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. We spoke that night. Um, and then once I made the decision, the final, the, the following day, he drove from Bozeman, picked me up. I went back to Bozeman, spent the night with, at his house, uh, his two daughters went out to dinner. I mean, this is like the, I felt just so extracted from reality. I'd been living okay only for five days, but you know, largely in the wilderness for 95% of the day. And then there we are at a beer hall that night and going out to a really good dinner and, and sleeping at his, I mean, it was just, it sounds so weird because it was such a short period of time, but it was just like, it was like a twilight zone. Where am I? Why is this it, it all of a sudden it was just so simple. Uh, so I spent the night there and then got on an airplane the next day and flew home and uh, flew into Boston as opposed to Vermont where, where we live because Laura was meeting her best friend from California who was in Boston for a medical meeting. And Laura swooped me up and brought me back to my parents' house. And then I saw my dad the next day for the first time. I saw my, both my parents for the first time in four or five months, like, how smoothly that all came together. It's like you threw all the pieces in the air and they just landed where they were supposed to land. Yeah. Sort of a karmic experience. And I mean, I, it's interesting that you say like, so rarely do we fully immerse in something 
uh, where, you know, like you said, you're in the wilderness for five days and then all of a sudden you come out and there's this net, this is support network, even while you're in it, the support network that is, is pretty amazing. And I, I'm going back to you saying like, when you're feeling good, the first few days, you were happy being alone. You totally didn't mind being alone, but then and I think this is what happens out there. Then when the body does start to break down, the mind does need companionship, but you, you do sort like this guy gave you his hotel room. Your friend came from, you know, a college friend came to get you. And it's, it's kind of a beautiful juxtaposition that you, we don't often get to experience this extreme solitude, but mm -hmm. then just the simple act of somebody giving you a hotel room and how, how much that helped you. Like, it's sort of like you can't have one without you appreciate one so much more when you're being, being able to experience both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, if I were to rewrite the script, I wouldn't, this wouldn't be it. Right. I would much prefer to be on the course and be ripping along and whether I'm first or 10th or hundredth healthfully, I think that's, that's the script I'd rather write. But to go back almost an hour now, I, what I, what I love about bikepacking is it takes you out of your comfort zone. Like I wouldn't have had everything you just said with, were it not for bikepacking. Like, yes, I love sleeping in my own bed and I love having a thermostat and getting into a warm shower and using our espresso machine in the morning. But to not have that, I think is also really meaningful also. And to like, you don't know highs without lows. You don't know lows without highs. It's true. So, and you, you come home and your friends and family, you're like, Oh, I love my bed. I love my, this is so amazing stuff that we take for granted when they're taken away. Um, and maybe this is a good segue. I mean, this story that you had written in your head ahead of time that, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to, you're going to do this thing. You're going to finish somewhere near the front. You know, that story didn't get written and maybe the fact that it didn't get written the way that there is something missing is, is going to fuel you for the next time. You've already said you're going to go back. So <laughs> I want to ask you, so what will you do? Okay. You have the desire, maybe it's not next year, maybe whenever you have the desire to do more ultra endurance bike packing. How will you prevent rhabdo from happening again? What would you do differently? That's the question that I think I struggle with the most. Uh, to prevent rhabdo, you you train more. Um, apparently, a lot of people get it when they get into CrossFit for the first time, and they go ham in CrossFit, and and they get rhabdo. They end up in the hospital. And you, man, I heard some crazy anecdotes from people across social media who say, "Thankfully, you listen to your body because this is what happened to me. This is what happened to my friend. This is what happened to my my son, my daughter, my father." And there's some horror stories out there. Yeah. Well, you made a point and I'll just remind you because you're trying to figure this out on your own. Um, you made the point that, you know, this guy who did an 800 mile ride right before Lael often rides Alexander Houchin. They both rode to the start thousands of mm -hmm. miles, um, perhaps other bikepacking events, which is hard time commitment, but other three, five you know, I, I always have believed that um, racing is training and mm -hmm. you've done that in your road career. You've done that in your mountain bike and your gravel career. You go to races that really aren't 
you're a racist, but you're immersing yourself in the situation. So immersing yourself in, even if it's your own overnighters, um, mm -hmm. that may be a way that you have to shift your kind of training. Cause that, you know, two, three hours on the bike, you know, your road training, your gravel training didn't, didn't cut the muster this time, despite what Jay said, you know, right. you're, you're fit and you are an extremely fit human being, but you're asked, you asked your body to do something it wasn't ready for, which right. is what Rabdo, why Rabdo comes on. Yep. So. Yeah. I, I mean, I went into this as, uh, let me rephrase that early June, I was as lean as I have been in a very long time. I think as a result of being in California for an extended period of time, all spring riding a ton, um, riding more than, than is allowed here in Vermont through the spring. And I just, with no specific, I don't have a diet. I didn't have a training plan. It was, you know, train to race and then do a handful of races. I was eating like a hungry who knows what? I mean, I was I I was fueling my body well, but I was still very lean. It has been brought up to me, yeah. What would happen if you went in less lean and like go back to the 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 tours and the days of of your where yeah, you you don't go in at your peak fitness because you're going to gain fitness throughout the event. That might be a big one. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think what's exciting is, you know, like I said, you're spiraling your career out and you haven't you've got a new challenge you haven't figured out. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really glad you're okay. But I also really like hearing, yeah, that you've got the brain for solo, you know, endeavors and you really have the meticulous planning brain for all of the gear and the equipment that has to happen. But then the support network and the family and I mean... It'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I have a feeling that this is a to be continued type story. But um, as we wrap up, I've got a few questions for you that yeah. that one, I'm going to remind everyone who's listening. Ted is doing his gear breakdown. He's going to put his bike, his clothes, like all that stuff is really interesting. I will say whatever Ted used may not be right for you. <laughs> um, like we said at the beginning, because everybody's going to be different, but great to take a look at it, see what his choices were. And then that's how you learn. You make some choices and you go out and practice with those things, but that's going to be super valuable. I'm glad you're, you're laying it all out because the equipment is often what's most daunting for mm -hmm. people. It's just trying to wrap their head around that. So he's going to do that. He's going to do a gear breakdown for you. Um, but I, so I want to ask you, so you rode five, five days and change, right? Some stats. Yep. You, Averaged about 16 hours on the bike per day, about 16 hours move time. What was your moving time? Do you know? Like, that is a terrific question. I honestly have no idea. Uh, yeah, I'd probably say that first day was anomalous because I only did 150. Yeah. So but somewhere that 15 down. You're riding sunrise to sunset. Most. Yeah. Which in, I wish that translated to, if you rode 16 hours, I wish that translated to eight hours of sleep, but. It wasn't anywhere close. I was sleeping yeah. like three, probably. Yeah. There's a lot of time to get food, clean your bike, clean your bike. Like you said, there's, you know, it sounds like, oh, someone was stopped for eight hours. It doesn't mean yeah. you slept seven hours. Right, right, <laughs> right. So total miles that you did. Um, do you know that? I'm going to have to look that up. Seven, 700 something. Seven something in, in just. <laughs> Velocity just made good, right? Like maybe yeah. seven. Because I was good, and then I backtracked the ways. We'll call yeah. it seven forty. I'm pulling that number out of a hat. I don't know. Pretty good training week. 
Um, Decent. The the best book, the the book you were listening to. Would you recommend it? This audio book. What was it? Um, I listened to one about uh, the oh, man. I'm, proper nouns are not my favorite thing because I just have a terrible memory for them. Uh, the oil rig and the golf that that was engulfed in flames and blew up and was a massive disaster. Uh, that was recommended by a friend of mine. That was. That was sort of a downer. Um, Kara Goucher's book is one that I listened to. That was that was very good and, and highly recommended. Nice. Well, maybe on your gear list, put a book book recommendation of what I do. The same thing. I listen to audiobooks when I'm when I'm out riding, and it it, it keeps my brain active when when I'm falling asleep or whatever. Um, favorite is made for for audiobooks because yeah, it's yeah. so like an hour long podcast. It's like oh, let's listen to this twelve hour book. Yeah, you're like unabridged. I'm like perfect. <laughs> oh, this is a wild one, real quick. Because I was riding in Montana, there's so many of these hunting cabins in the middle of nowhere. And the whole time that I've, every time I saw one, I was like, man, this reminds me of the Unabomber. Didn't the Unabomber live around here? And no lie, I slept one night in Lincoln, Montana, which is where the Unabomber lived. Right. And so since then, I've I'm listening to a Unabomber manifesto, which is a fascinating read. I mean, not, not the most uplifting, but it's, that is a crazy story and it makes a lot of sense in this geography. It's, it's, I do kind of, when I try to choose audiobooks, often I will choose books that are either take place or authors from the area that I'm in. So sure. maybe next to yeah. divide, you need to read a Unabomber, like more <laughs> Unabomber. So biggest fear. I think I know that maybe the Grizzlies. Was that your biggest uh, fear? Yeah. Yeah. Grizzlies were a fear of mine for sure. Probably the other big fears you had ahead of time. Honestly, I don't think so. I mean, cool. yeah. okay. Favorite, favorite uh, food that you found along the trail or got at a gas station that was the, really good for you? I'd never done this move, but it works terrifically well. The frozen burrito in a Jersey pocket. You buy a frozen burrito. It warms it up. You eat it six hours later. I mean, you you assume not too much bacteria has grown in that six hour window. Uh, that one worked really well. And then Montana is really known for their huckleberries. So I had a huckleberry ice cream, a huckleberry ice cream bar in particular, which was phenomenal. And uh, best memory from the trail, maybe not the huckleberry bar, but like a best, like really highlight memory. I would. I would allude back to that first day when, yeah, I don't know, four or five hours in, the weather's perfect, and you're just on that high of the angst is gone, the the worries are gone, you're in this group. And actually, geez, we saw a grizzly baby that morning, um, which is the last thing you want to see is the baby, because that means mama's nearby. But even that wasn't... That's why your miles per hour was so fast. Exactly. You see my heart rate spike at that moment. Um <laughs> I don't know. I, I really wish that, I mean, I want people to experience that. And I don't actually want to pass that worry, uh, that, that, that message along that the worry is all going to vanish because I just want people to experience it also. Cause we are all these first timers and all of a sudden we're just like, this is it. We're on this high. This is amazing right now. This is the moment. I so, think that's that a, I mean, that's a amazing, maybe another list that you share with the team or, or for anyone listening that ultra endurance events are a massive roller coaster. And when I first started doing eco challenges, um, which were multi-day multi-sport events, a, a friend who was experienced said to me, you know, no matter how good or bad you feel, it won't last. 
and that there's always a high, there's always a low. Um, and I think that's important to remember when you are low, there's going to be another high. Um, and even though your trip ended as not as you had written the story, I really enjoy hearing the highs because that's so important. And then you take the lows and you're like, all right, what did I learn? So, um, you know, we've asked you a little bit about, you know, if you'd go back and what you've learned and I think you're, you're working through that, but as we close this one, I want to thank you for sharing the story. Um, I want to welcome you into bikepacking because it's pretty magical. Um, and I want to see, do you have, you know, Closing words for people who are thinking into getting into exploring on their bike. It may not be the Tour Divide. It doesn't have to be 2,700 miles. There's lots of cool bike packing events. Mm-hmm. And design your own DIY bike packing event. You've actually got um, a new sort of uh, evolution chapter of your career where you're you're hosting some really cool bike packing rides to help people learn and figure out their gear and do that. And they're full for this year. So people don't need to go sign up yet, but I think it's really great that you're providing this kind of a resource, hopefully for somebody who wants to go explore on their own. So if you have just a few words of like somebody interested in either racing, just going out, going exploring, um, what would you Uh, say to them? I think, yeah, the, the shortest word is, or term is just go do it. Um, it's take that leap. It's take that risk. It's, it's go do it. Um, I, I rode this morning for a couple hours and I saw a father son duo, um, and they were riding the Vermont gravel growler and they rode it over five days and they're like, ah, yeah. I mean, we, we stayed in hotels and I'm like, I don't care. That's, it's so rad that you're doing it. So the, the excitement of again, going out of your comfort zone, typically, it's presumably 99% of listeners go out on a bike ride and they're going to go and sleep in their bed that night. Like even go get a hotel, go ride for two days and get a hotel in the middle of it. I mean, that allows a point to point ride on, on consecutive days, which is so cool and different and fun and exciting. Um, yeah. You mentioned the Ted's excellent adventure of which we have three series, three of a series this year. And, and the point of that is to learn from each other because I'm clearly a novice in this. And I want to learn from other people as much as that I can impart info to them. Um, So yeah, we're, we're, I don't know the term to say we've sold out because we don't charge any money, but we've capped uh, registration at, at both the events, the California and uh, sorry, the, the Vermont, we already had California. We Vermont's coming up. Pacific Northwest is coming up and for my sanity, keeping it capped in this first year is, is, helpful uh but yeah i mean it's taking a page out of the things that you have done it's seeing what jay has done it's seeing what Lael has done it's seeing what the other folks in this bikepacking community are doing to expand the reach of the sport and it's it's fun and is exciting and it's uplifting and it's empowering and it's it's so neat to be part of it well so. and i have to say i mean i'm I'm love that you're you're putting on hosting these rides um i just did a ride in idaho that also a new route that was hosted by somebody there are bike packing bike exploring it's a very welcoming community and get together even though there you can't come to ted's thing you can't jp offers some stuff like that jp are very but really, people are all just getting together, riding bikes, exploring. And I think it is the most beautiful thing in the world. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a race, like you said, mm-hmm. like your father-son story. Go exploring on a bike is 
pretty friggin' magical. So I love this chapter, this evolution of your spiral. Um, and you're inspiring a lot of people by being humble and being new to it as well. And even as pro Ted King, you're like, yeah, I didn't finish this event. Uh, you know, I might do a couple things different, um, but you're going to get out there and keep exploring, which I really love. And um, I thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and hear your stories. Well, you are amazing for any number of reasons, not least of which because you reached out and said, Hey, how do we tell your story? This is you've, you've accumulated this, this bit of knowledge, this thing, this experience, and, and let's, let's share it. So I'm tremendously grateful to you for reaching out. Uh, thank you for taking your time. Uh, yeah. What we got two minutes shy of the hour when you have to sign off. Well, so I'm not taking over your podcast, awesome but Thank I you. wanted to make sure you could share the knowledge. Cause that's what uh, ultra endurance bike packing is about is us. Hey, sharing what we learned and what we know and inviting more people to go exploring. Mm-hmm. Um, and love yeah, it. get that gear love list it, it. done for us so we can all dig into it. Maybe get some stats out there for us. And uh, for everyone who's listening, um, the tour divide is still going on right now. So go on track leaders and uh, you can check on a few of our friends like Chris Burkhart, Lael, uh, Alexander Houchin. Um, I think Alex Howes is still in it. Uh, a lot of good friends. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, check it out and sort of virtually cheer those people on because they feel it. I think you felt the energy out there. You knew people were watching. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> my social media is never as popular as it's been the past two weeks. Uh, and I say that like looking at the the stats and just like, Oh man, yeah. Tons of people, hundreds of thousands of people are paying attention. And that, that is shocking and cool and flattering. And well, fun. thanks for letting us join in on your ride. I really appreciate it, Ted. And, um, Thank next you, time. Rebecca. <laughs> That's right. We'll do it. Ted and Rebecca's excellent adventure coming up. I love that. (laughs) Rad. All right. Thanks, brother. That was amazing. So good.